Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to his, with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some official officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of the soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it reveals to us what you desire for us to know. To know what Jesus said and did, to see how he did the things he did, that your apostles have written these things down that we might have understanding And yet we need your spirit to illuminate these truths to our heart that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts of faith to respond. Please grant this to us today as we look at this passage together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing in our sermon series in John's gospel and we have... We're getting close to the end. We're in chapter 18. We have 18, 19, and 20 left. And this is the beginning of what is known as the Passion Narrative. The beginning of Jesus' suffering and passion before his death. If you remember where we're at in the story, in the chapters before us, there were the Upper Room Discourse, the Last Supper, Jesus encouraging his disciples, and then just the past few weeks we've been looking at his high priestly prayer as he has prayed for this hour that is coming, the hour that has come, that his disciples would be kept, that they would be commissioned for this mission to continue the work that Jesus had started. And then Jesus prayed for those who would come to believe through their word. And then they go to the garden. We're told at the beginning of our passage, 
right after this prayer happens, they cross over the brook of the Kidron to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. We've heard of this place through the other uh, gospel accounts, and we, we get a little bit more insight from the parallel accounts from other writers. But it's interesting, as John writes his gospel, he tends to highlight things that the other gospels did not. It's often believed that this gospel was probably the last one to be written. And so as John is writing, he is highlighting for us specific details that it's necessary for us to understand why. Or maybe to gain further insight that we wouldn't necessarily get from one of the other gospel accounts. One commentator talks about this brook of Kidron and makes an interesting observation. It is the Passover. And no doubt, hundreds of lambs have been slain and their blood would be poured out into the Kidron. And at this time, perhaps would be stained with blood. The evidence of the Passover before them as they cross over into this garden. And as we think of this garden, John does not call it by its name the way the other authors do. And yet if we think of garden imagery, there's also some sense in this word of Jesus being out, right? They're leaving out, going out to a desolate place, a place they would often go together in prayer. And it is oftentimes in the Bible when we see Jesus going away. He is going away in a battle. A battle against Satan and his temptations. Going off into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted. Oftentimes going away to pray by himself to be in this spiritual battle. And here in this time of testing, in this moment where everything is going to seemingly leave Jesus's control, when he is going to be handed over and bound, no longer free to move about, Jesus is in a battle. And yet, we will see in our passage that he is clearly in control. And that is our big idea today, that Jesus is fully in control of all that is happening and all that is going to happen. And we see that he is in control as he shows us his power, as he shows us his purpose, and as he shows us his protection. So first, Jesus shows us he is in control by showing us his power. We're told that Judas finally goes and procures for himself this gathering of soldiers and officers from the chief priests conspiring together, right? Jew and Gentile conspiring together against the Messiah who ultimately will bring these two people together. <coughs> Roman soldiers, officers from the temple, and they come, we're told, with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Lanterns, torches, and weapons, which shows for us that we are in the night. 
And of course, as we confess in our assurance of our confession of faith today, the imagery of light and darkness in John's gospel is throughout, and here we have entered into this dark moment when Judas is going to perhaps commit the most heinous of sins, betraying our Lord. And so they come fully armed, ready to do battle. But it's a different battle than they expect when they show up. So they show up. We're told that Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. And yet he comes forward, not shrieking back, not hiding away, but steps towards them as they approach And he asks them, who do you seek? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he. Now that translation is unfortunate. Because what Jesus is saying here is the final I am statement of John's gospel. Oftentimes we're told that there are seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And as we've hit on all of these I am statements, we've continued to point ourselves back to the divine name I am, which we're first told about in Exodus chapter 3. Moses at the burning bush, we're told in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to, my, to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The divine name, I am, is being put on Jesus' lips one more time to show us his power. And as these men show up with weapons and torches and ill intent, what do we see? Jesus defeats them with a word from his lips. When Jesus says, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. He, in just a word, reveals his glory, even in a way that these non-believing Jews, these pagan Roman soldiers, are so struck that they fall to the ground. It's a shocking scene. It's unimaginable that Jesus and his band of disciples would stand there and Jesus would say a word and these trained men would cower in fear. Jesus shows us his power because he shows us that he is God. He reveals his divine truth. His name I am. Jesus is in control. He didn't have to let them get off the ground. 
He could have called the legions of angels to come and destroy them. In fact, we see just a few verses later, he could have let Peter finish off the job. But Jesus is in control of all circumstances. And we see how mighty his power is that even one word from his lips undoes the strongest of men. But secondly, we see how Jesus is in control in this moment as he reveals to us his purpose. As we just said, Simon Peter sees these men fall and he says, this is it, we're taking over. And he rips out his sword and strikes one of the servants. We know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus heals this man after telling Peter to put his sword away. But what does Jesus say? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus, we're told, fully, full well knowing what is going to happen. Knowing that these men who he could easily defeat are going to bind him and bring him and try him falsely and beat him and abuse him and spit upon him and make him look ridiculous and ultimately hand him over to be crucified at the hands of the Romans. And yet he says, shall I not drink that cup? Jesus willingly lays down his life. He willingly goes to be captured by these men. I can only imagine their recounting of it to those who were above them as they came back with Jesus. Well, how did it go? I'm sure they didn't say we fell on the ground and wet ourselves and then Jesus came with us willingly. But that's essentially what has happened here. Jesus is submitting himself to the definite plan of God. It is no mistake that Jesus is being betrayed. It is no mistake that he is being captured. Jesus is in control. If you're reminded back to some of the things Jesus has told us in this gospel, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus fully intended to lay down his life for the sheep. John chapter 15, Jesus reminds us of his great love and says, No greater love has one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The disciples didn't quite understand. They still wanted to take over. And yet Jesus is already taken over. He is already in control. He is already the one orchestrating what is happening, and he willingly lays down his life. 1 John chapter 3 tells us this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus had been telling his disciples of his great love, washing their feet, sharing these intimate moments with them. And yet the greatest act of love was still yet to come when Jesus would lay down his life for them. Jesus 
very explicitly in John chapter 10 tells us that he is the one who has this authority. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Nobody can kill Jesus in their own strength, in their own authority, in their own power. Nobody can take his life away. Jesus has the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. And so we see here Jesus is in control. He has shown us his power with the divine name. He has shown us his purpose to willingly lay down his life, to drink the cup that the Father has given to him, which leads us into this next and final point. We see Jesus in control as he protects his disciples. Jesus tells us in verse 8, I told them, Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. These men, no doubt, would have liked to take all of those men away. Get the whole band together. Try them all. Squash the movement. Quelch the insurrection. Bring order. And yet Jesus, the one who has just spoken these men into terror with a word, says, look, you're here for me. Let them go. It wasn't really an option for them to obey Jesus or not. As we've already stated, it seems that he willingly went along with them, not because they were more powerful than him. And so he strikes a deal. I will go with you, but leave them. Because he had promised that, not one, that he would not lose any of them. And he willingly drinks this cup that we just touched on. Not for his own sake. Not because it seemed like a good thing to do. But he goes by himself to drink this cup of judgment and wrath for the greater protection of his disciples. Not just protecting them from these men with their swords and their torches, but to protect them from the judgment of God himself. He willingly drinks the cup given to him by the Father. And so the band of soldiers were told in verse 12, they come and they arrest Jesus and they bind him. And they lead him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Because it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it should be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
This is where we want to get back to the imagery of the Kidron River filled with blood and the bound Jesus. Who is now the sacrificial lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. As John the Baptist so boldly proclaimed early on in this gospel. He is bound like that lamb, and he is brought to the priests to be examined. If you remember this quote back from John chapter 11, they're trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. And one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. And see, here we have the orchestration that Jesus is in control of everything that is happening. And even this prophetic word from the high priest that, well, if we just kill this one man, it will be better for everybody. Think about how much more turmoil there will be if we let him go on. He has evil intent. He has a logical solution to their temporary problem. And yet... It is a prophetic word that Jesus is fulfilling here, that he is the one who will die for the people. Not so that they can continue on business as usual in Jerusalem. And not just for those named among the people of Israel, but that through the one man's death, He would also gather many who are scattered abroad into one children of God. Jesus has been prepared as the sacrifice. He has been examined by the priests and he is going now to the altar. And it is no accident. Jesus is in control. Jesus lays down his life. And as the one who is divine, he is able to provide for you and for me and for all whom God has foreordained to be brought into his kingdom, every single sin to be forgiven. If a mere man were to die, it wouldn't even pay for his own sin. And yet the Son of God has died to pay for the sins of all men. And it is counted to us as he has come in the flesh to be a representative. Just as in the Old Testament when they sacrificed these lambs that never really forgave their sins. Because what is the price of a lamb compared to a man? They aren't even the same type. There was a type and a shadow that pointed to something greater. And Jesus, coming in the form of man, died as a man for men. But he was no mere man. He had the surpassing worth and value and perfect righteousness because he was God's son. 
fully God and fully man. There is great comfort in this passage as we look to it. Some people who like to read the Bible from a skeptical position or think that Jesus was not who he said he was, they view Jesus' death as kind of the end. That clearly Jesus has been run over by the wheel of history. A man who claimed such things was ultimately killed. He could not stand up to the people in his day, the authorities that be at work. But that is not how the Bible portrays what it took place. We see here that Jesus is fully in control, willingly knows what's going to happen. And for the sake of his disciples and for the sake of you and for me, he laid down his life. And it was no accident. This is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Brothers and sisters, if you are ever struggling with whether or not God loves you, you might be in difficult circumstances. Your relationships may be in turmoil. You may have lost everything in your life. The greatest gift that God has given to you is not comfort in this life, not possessions in this life, but the very life of his son, so that in death we have the hope of his resurrection. We have the ability to be forgiven. We can come before him loved as one of his children. And so as we look at these passages in the weeks ahead, as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, as he is Humiliated before the people. He does it willingly because of his love for you. May we have that in our minds as we look to these passages. May we be reminded of his great love for us in our times of doubt, in our times of questioning. May we begin to grasp more fully how freely he would have been to go the other way. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, bearing its shame, so that we could be made children of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is in control. He always has been and always will be. Even now, as we stand here thousands of years later, Lord, he is ruling and reigning. And his sacrifice is efficacious enough to cover our sins. Lord, we thank you that you sent him as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. We thank you for bringing us into your kingdom as your children. Help us to rejoice. Help us to bring worship in our hearts because of these great truths. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.